Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you that as your people we can laugh about some of these things that take place, our own foibles and failures at times. And yet as we consider a very serious part of life and humanity and your mercy and grace and judgment this morning, Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you and that you would speak to us in your kindness and grace but in your holiness and righteousness together with that kindness and grace too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The prevailing wind is no longer at the back of the sails of professing Bible-believing Christians. Indeed, the wind appears to be blowing hard behind the forces of secularism. Secularism, which has, as we heard from Romans 1, and Bob wonderfully showed the children, suppresses the truth of God and has exchanged that truth for a lie. Those opening words are actually some words uh, from a book that Alastair Begg has uh, recently put out called Brave by Faith. And in that book, he uh, considers the life and the book of Daniel in the scriptures and encouraging us today as Christians to know and trust the same sovereign, powerful Lord God in our day that Daniel trusted in his. That we might have the same God-sized confidence in our post-Christian world and culture that Daniel had in his pre-Christian Babylon. Alastair Begg doesn't wisely, doesn't teach us to be like Daniel, but rather to see what Daniel's God was like, is like, and how God worked through Daniel. And therefore, from that and from God's word, we too could have that same God-sized confidence in our Babylonian culture today that he had in his. Because, as Paul says in Romans 1, we are all without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We're seeing the effects of that in today's age, aren't we? We're seeing the effects of those changing winds that Alastair Begg speaks of more and more in our own society. We're seeing it daily in our marketplace, in our workplaces, in our government, on the sporting fields, in our schools. Last week I read, with the current Women's World Cup on, that this is the gayest tournament in all history. And no one's batting an eyelid. In fact, many are cheering on the sidelines. And do you know which nation's team appears to have the most gay people in it? Australia. Now, I haven't minded keeping up with the Matildas and seeing their progress through their World Cup journey. 
But it is interesting and sad, isn't it? The moment we're out of the run for the win, how the media have turned their attention away from the scoreboard and onto the sexuality of the team. Though they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Bob Dylan once sang, The times they are a-changing. The winds are a-changing. They are wafting, and I think more than wafting, sometimes they are blowing quite strongly, aren't they? Not just into the well, but into our own homes and even into our churches today. This life will not be easy, Begg goes on in his book, because there is raging around us a continual and irreconcilable war. And neutrality is not an option. Life may well get harder. Society may get unfriendlier. We now speak of, or hear of at least, our woke culture. Actively and acutely aware of the social issues and giving greater platform and louder voice to those seen in a minority, especially where inequality has been perceived whether that's now in areas of race or wages or sexuality. And some of that is good and right. It's good to address ungodly and unloving oppression and discrimination. But together with that now, we are all expected not only to accept, but to embrace the many and varied options our so-called diverse and inclusive community present to us. And if we don't fight for the underdog today, if we don't embrace, which effectively means to approve and advocate for not only the people but their lifestyles, then we're named bigots and seem to be from the dark ages today. It's no longer enough as Christians to keep our thoughts and our religion and faith to ourselves, if that ever was a good thing in the first place. We now need to be seen publicly to accept and embrace all manner of alternative lifestyles. Lifestyles the Bible would describe as dishonourable, perverse, unnatural, abominations, sin, active, rebellious and impenitent sin. And here we are preaching a series titled Glorious Humanity. Sadly, there's much about humanity today that is far from glorious, isn't there? And if we're honest, many of us actually don't know what to say or what to think, how to speak into the situations that we find ourselves in. Our families, our friends, our workplaces, the world. We're not sure how to respond if we are to respond at all. Should we maybe just keep our heads down and try to duck and weave the issues? Do we even really know what we're fighting against? And how could we ever win such a battle when the tides have well and truly turned? A quote again from Alastair Begg's book, Brave by Faith. He encourages his, encourages us, his readers. Faith in Christ may become still more unacceptable and obedience to Christ still more costly. We need to be prepared for that. But Jesus reigns, and Jesus will return. 
We may not understand every part of the picture, but stand back and see the broad sweep of it. God has won. God wins. And so we will prevail too beyond the battle that you and I are a part of and must fight well in. Martin Luther once said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, then I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides that point is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now, Luther's name in German means soldier of the people, and perhaps that um, gave him some of his attitude and approach, skewed it towards that way of thinking. You may or may not agree with Luther's statement that every believer needs to be right at the pointy end of that battle. But it is clear that there's many fronts (laughs) or among the many fronts that the battle for faith and God and, and, and Christianity today is being waged upon, one of the areas most fiercely waged is that of sexuality, gender and identity. And within that, we are called, all of us, to fight the good fight, if not those fights. We are all called not to be conformed to the world, aren't we? But to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we worship the Lord with our whole lives, including our bodies. But to do that, to not be conformed, to know what we're not being conformed to, we need to know what is true. And I think we need to hear and do what Paul says, for example, in Philippians, in the face of the opposition they're expected to face, he encourages them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, together. To strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not to be afraid. Because, he says, it may well be granted to us as it will be for them, not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Now, most of you here know me reasonably well. I've been pastor here for almost 12 years now, and you would know that I'm not much of a... I don't claim to be a cultural anthropologist. I'm not much of a social commentator, and I don't tend to pick up political things on the pulpit don't think it's the right place. Sometimes I don't even think I read the room very well. But I do read God's word. And as we started this series, what I want us to do this morning and encourage us all, not just this morning, but in our life and in these battles, is to look to God and his word first. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Remember from Psalm 8? Start with him. And finish giving glory to him. That's how we work out everything in between. And so in these changing times, these winds of change, we need to turn again afresh to God's word and to understand just what is going on. When Shane and Ali finish that Bible reading, this is the word of the Lord. And we all said, thanks be to God. And I hope you connected that with what we heard in the reading. I'm not going to suggest this morning specific answers or solutions for every social situation we might find ourselves in or every question that's raised 
in light of these changing winds. We don't have the time for that to raise or address them all. But I do want to help us think biblically, Christianly, about some of the realities of life that we are confronted with and to help us see a little bit maybe behind the scenes of what's actually taking place in our culture today. In many cultures. And I want to encourage us in the same way Beg does in his book with this God-sized confidence we can have today. If you're quick, in the next two weeks or so, you can actually look up that book in his Truth for Life website. You can download it for free as an audio book. I commend it to you. Very helpful, very encouraging. But one of the first main points I want us to hear this morning is this, that as we see and wrestle with, it's not just all out there, we're wrestling with it our own hearts in our own homes and families, as we wrestle with the morals and values of our society that seem to be going down the drain, as we say, I want us to see that they're not simply floating down the drain. They're not simply going with the flow like leaves after a storm or a rain down the gutter on the side of the road. They've actually been given a good shove in that direction. And that shove has come from what might seem to some of us a surprising source. A couple of weeks ago we heard from Romans 8 how it was God who subjected creation to futility. God subjected it to futility in hope. And in a similar way this morning, we hear from Romans 1 what must be some of the most chilling words in all Scripture when God gave them up, humanity. Ungodliness and unright- ungodly and unrighteous humanity, God handed us over to the lust of our hearts, to dishonourable passions and to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. And at the end of that slippery slope down the drain that we read of in Romans 1, not only do we do such things, we approve those who do them. And we're doing even more than that today. We're teaching it to our children. And it's God who has handed us over to these things. Now hear me carefully here. I'm not saying God is the author of sin. I'm not saying that it's his idea that we go down this path. No, sinful, unrighteous humanity, fallen humanity of well and truly set ourselves in the direction we are going. We've raised the sails and set the rudder to steer the course down the drain. We've wanted to go with these winds of change. But as Paul declares, in his wrath, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness against all those who are trying to suppress the truth, not just ping-pong balls, but the truth of God. And as that wrath is revealed, God has given us a mighty shove to push us off in the direction that we have chosen, fallen humanity has chosen to go. I wondered this week if I might change the title of the message uh, from Glory Exchange to God Gives Up. might have grabbed a few more people's attention, but perhaps like a good or not so good newspaper headline, it would have been just as misleading as it was eye-catching because God hasn't given up. He's given us up over to the lust of our hearts, but he hasn't given up on us. He's given us up to our sinful ways. He is merciful and he's gracious, he's patient, he's slow to anger, he's kind, he's forgiving, all those things that the kids um, brought out for Bob. 
And in times past and even today, in his mercy and kindness, he has actively restrained sin and evil in his mercy and grace. He knows all too well what we are capable of. He said so at the Tower of Abel. Nothing is impossible for man if they get together and want to rebel against me. But God has kept us, most of us, most of the time from falling all the way into the darkest depths of our depravity. And yet there is a limit to his patience. Slow to anger he may be, but that doesn't mean his anger is never provoked. You've only got to open the scriptures to see that. Slow to anger and patient, but that doesn't mean he is not wrathful. One thing that didn't come out, it's interesting, isn't it? God is judge. We don't like to remember that one so quickly, do we? But he is holy judge. The wrath of God, verse 18. If you haven't got Romans 1 open, I encourage you to open it up. Work through this with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In his patience, God doesn't tolerate sin. He can't remain God, holy and righteous, and tolerate sin. He can't accept it. He definitely can't embrace it, as we've been asked to today. Forgive it, absolutely, at great cost, but not tolerate or embrace it. Sinful humanity is hell-bent in our rebellion against God, our determination to go our own way. But in God's loving kindness throughout the ages, most of the time God has kept hold of the line tied to the boat that's determined to go down that stream. But when God does let go of that rope, because we are so determined, he doesn't just let go, he gives the boat a good shove to help us on our way. He hands us over to our sin. Or as another writer puts it, when God releases his hand of restraint, he extends his hand of judgment. What we think, what humanity thinks is freedom and progress, finally free from the restraints of God and all this old-fashioned morality, Judeo-Christian ethics. What we think is freedom is actually our punishment. It's the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness. And so my first point this morning for us is this, that what we are seeing in our culture today is not simply humanity getting its own way. It is God giving us up in his wrath and judgment. Having suppressed the truth of God, verse 18, having exchanged the truth and the glory of God for a lie, verses 23 and 25, Three times in this passage, have a look, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, gave us up, in the lusts of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of our bodies among ourselves. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, women and men exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, consumed with passion for one another. And verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And just when you thought it's all going to be about sexuality and gender and stuff, have a listen to, you know, we're getting further and further down the drain here. Unrighteousness, evil, greed, malice, gossip. That's in the same category of these unhealthy, unnatural relationships. Haters of God, insolent, proud, disobedient to their parents. It's well down the list. 
You might laugh. Why is that in the same category as men committing unnatural acts with men? So we see some sins as very serious, don't we, and others as less so. But it starts by degrees, and it starts with a refusal to obey, a refusal, a reversal of roles and the rejection of authority and love and the abdication of our roles and responsibilities. We're going to look at that a little more next week. And we're given up to all manner of foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness and ruthlessness. And finishes off, as we said, even more frightening. Not only do we do these things, but we approve. Not only do people do these things, we approve. And now we're even teaching those who practice them. It's not only the result of sinful humanity having its way. This is God handing us over to our sin. Which also means, our second point. It also means that everything that's happening is not outside of God's control. None of it is. He has not lost control of humanity. And the second point really is this. This is not the first time these things have happened. We might feel they are today for us in our nation. But they're not. Nor is this just a moral or sexual behavioural thing. It's not even primarily about sexuality and gender and identity. It's primarily about worship. The battles we are facing today that you and I are facing personally and in the church and in the culture around us, they are worship wars. Before they're about our identity, before they're about our sexuality, they're about who and what we are worshipping, which is why the book of Daniel is such a good place to go, as Alistair Begg does. And you might remember Grant actually did a short series, I think two or three messages years ago, with a very similar encouragement to learn from Daniel and his friends and the God of Daniel and his friends. All of us are involved in this battle, personally, corporately, in the church and in the world. We cannot escape it. We all fight the worship wars, even in our own heart, as flesh and spirit wage within us, wage war within us. If not for the grace of God, where would any of us be? Even with the grace of God, the battle wages fierce enough, doesn't it? Some days in your own heart, your own life, your own body. This is not a new thing. It started out in Eden, didn't it? In the garden. It was a worship battle. Moses with Pharaoh in Egypt, Israel in the old covenant, and the church in the new. The question is that we're confronted with every day. Who will I worship? Who do we worship? Adam and Eve, they, were, they saw the fruit, they were told it was good, it was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise, and the serpent said, if you have it, you'll be like God. You don't have to be a creature, you can be like God. It's a battle for worship. At Babel, they wanted to build a tower to reach the heavens, make a name for themselves. Rather than worshipping the name of the Lord, they wanted to make one for themselves so that they would be objects of worship. What was it Moses was told by the Lord to go and tell Pharaoh time and time again, let my people go. Why? So that they could be free, so they can do it. No, so that they may worship me. The Exodus took place because it was a war about worship. 
God wanted his people to be let go so they could worship him. It tells you something about God's intent and his grace, that he would intervene so that that worship would take place. Always his goal from the very beginning that we as humanity crowned with glory and honour would worship him as the Lord. Christ was tempted in the wilderness, wasn't he, by the devil? And the final temptation was what? The peak of it all? Bow down and worship me, the devil said, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Just bow down and worship me. It's always the goal of the evil one to take away from God the glory and praise and worship that is his and his alone and draw our hearts and attention away from the one who is Lord of all. And what is it the blood of Christ has done for us in the gospel? Hebrews 9. Here in Jeff's Bible study group, you should know it well. The blood of goats and bulls, they couldn't cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. How much more would the blood of Christ cleanse and purify our consciences from dead works? Why? So that we might serve or worship the living God. Yes, it's about being forgiven of our sins, about being freed from the slavery of sin and the wrath of God, but ultimately the goal even of our sonship. We heard a week or two ago, and I think Packer's right, the greatest uh, the privilege in, in being a Christian is being adopted as a child of God into his family so that we might worship him as our father. And so this slippery slope that we read in Romans 1 where we've been given a good shove by the Lord doesn't begin with sexual immorality. It doesn't begin with confusion about who we are and what we're meant to be and where identity or agenda lies. It begins with an exchange, a worship exchange. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've exchanged the glory of God, the creator, for images of creatures, ultimately ourself, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. We exchange the glory of God for a moment of self-gratification. What an exchange that is. But God has not given up on us. He never will. We may have given up on God. We've worshipped and served creatures, the creature rather than the creator. But the creator has not given up on us. This is not a new thing. It's not even a sign just of our progressive times. We may think we've made so much progress in the last few decades, and technology, maybe we have. Interest rates keep on going up too, don't they? That's not progress, though. We think the more we cut our ties off from God, the more progress we've made. As we've been hearing in this series, we've been made in the image of God. We've fallen short of the glory of God, but God in Christ has restored us to where and who we rightly are, created to be, saved to be, glorified to be. And you know what our highest calling is? You know what our greatest potential is as human beings made in the image of God? It's to be worshippers of him. To reach beyond that is to fall from it. That will be our greatest glory when we with one voice are worshipping him with our whole hearts, minds, souls and strength. And that's what's contested at every point in our daily life and in the world around us. It's not a new cultural dynamic. 
Yes, this nation, the last few hundred years at least, have been built upon Christian values and they seem to be diminishing every day. But it's not new. Corinth was no different in Paul's day. Rome and Greece, we've got Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. This is not new stuff. So it's not new, but neither is it without hope. That's our third point this morning. Just as we heard last week where God has subjected creation to futility but in hope, so to hear earlier in Romans, God has given us up to these sinful and foolish ways but not without hope. Not without his loving kindness, just a few verses later in chapter 2, his loving kindness which is meant to lead us where? To repentance. He hasn't let go of the rope and given the boat a good shove downstream without hope or without the promise of a life boy, if you want to continue the analogy. But more than just a flotation device, he's given us resurrection power in his son. That power is at work towards us who believe. As Paul says, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. And he's writing that into the context of God's wrath being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In fact, you could say with how he writes here that God is actually setting humanity up at this time in our nation that it might be ripe for the gospel, that he's preparing the fields for harvest. Sinful humanity may well think they've flown the coop and gotten beyond God's reach, beyond the reach of his sovereign and righteous hand, but we haven't. We're not beyond the reach of his wrath but nor are we beyond the reach of his saving grace. His hand is not so short that it cannot save. Did you notice in our reading from Romans 1 that there are two things being revealed? Yes, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But I made sure we had verses 16 and 17 read as well, where Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed. So yes, the wrath of God is being revealed, but so too is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we missed it in the version we had read, but there's a for, as an F-O-R, in verse beginning of verse 18. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For, because, the wrath of God is being revealed. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need faith in the righteousness of God? Because the wrath of God is being revealed. In fact, the context of our culture and the context of Paul's culture is one of the reasons why he's motivated to preach the gospel. Fueled with love and compassion for his lost children, his lost fellow men and women. Yes, there will be those, sadly, many, too many, who refuse to grab hold of the lifeline that God gives in Christ. They'll be persistent in their rebellion to the end. They'll reject Christ and they'll reject the forgiveness given to them through him. But it's in the midst of all of this ungodliness and unrighteousness and sexual immorality and disobedience to parents, ruthlessness and faithlessness, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. 
because it's the power of God for salvation, because our world needs it, and because we need it. In other words, rather than shaking his head in disbelief and judgment, shaking his finger and letting them just go and reap the consequences of their sinful ways and steering clear of them, Paul's motivated by what he sees, motivated by the love of God and the righteousness of God in Christ, motivated by the wrath of God being revealed and proclaims the gospel. There is a God who saves. There is a God who restores you to the fullness of the human being you've been made to be. There's a family of God that you can belong to and be raised up in and given the full rights. We talk so much about rights today, don't we? What if you had the rights of the children of God? Would we fight for them? Paul himself knew what it was like to be under the wrath of God. But he also knew what it meant to be transformed by the grace of God in his son. I'm aware, well aware that many of us here, probably only aware of some of us, but we've got folk in our own families, our extended families and our friendships. Maybe we're wrestling with some of these things of Romans 1 in our own lives. Caught up with people we know, wrestling with, maybe settling in, fighting for lifestyles that God says here are unnatural and shameful and sinful. And it's love for our loved ones that should motivate us in the power of the gospel that saves. It's love for them that should help us and motivate us to learn, like Jesus, what it is to be a friend to sinners. That's what he was accused of. I'm still working this one out myself. What is it to be a friend of sinners without compromising the truth and the way of life we've been called to in Christ? in obedience to him. As I said, where would any of us be if not for the grace of God? Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but the ungodly. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but the sick. There's a place in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9 where he sees the sin of the people and the oppression, the suffering that sin has caused them and diseases and all other things going on. When he saw the crowds buckling under the pressure and afflicted in so many ways, we're told he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Many of our children today are harassed and feel helpless in the midst of the culture and the changing winds. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't have a lot of time for those who thought they didn't need help, but he had plenty of compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd. And so do you know what he did next? In that context, he doesn't condemn them all, but nor does he heal them all. In Matthew 11, instead he says to his disciples, pray. Pray. All these sheep without a shepherd. Pray. That's the passage where he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. 
And you know what he does next in the very next passage? <laughs> he sends out 12 disciples in the power of the Spirit and the kingdom of God to speak the truth of God. We do need to be able to see what's going on in the world around us. We need to be able to discern good from evil, right from wrong. We need not to be conformed to the world. Jesus encourages those he sends out at that time to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But we also need to know and not be ashamed of the power of the gospel to save. To have the confidence in the God who saves. In Christ and the power of the cross. The one who can save every sinner who turns in repentance and faith. Because you see the only way back from an exchange of glory that's taken place, as we read of in Romans 1, is a greater exchange. Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Can you hear the language of exchange there? Christ, who knew no sin, he became sin for us so that we, rebels and sinners that we are, might become his righteousness, the righteousness of God. I heard it recently said that you know God's church, God's family is full of the junkyard pieces of humanity. Well, where do you get that from? 1 Corinthians 6. There's no place in the kingdom for sinners, for the ungodly, the unrighteous, for idolaters, fornicators, adulterers, the sexually immoral, nor thieves or greedy people or drunkards or swindlers. No place in the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. God restores, God redeems. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So this is not new, but nor is it without hope. The greater exchange has taken place, hasn't it? God hasn't given up. He's given his son up for us sinners that we might not perish but have eternal life. In his wrath, yes, God has given up to these things, given us up sinful humanity up to these things things that are not new even though they might seem new to us but there is hope in Christ and in the power of the gospel to save and so encourage one another in these days every day in the unchanging truth of God the truth of God that doesn't change when the winds of our culture change teach one another teach your children what it is to be human that it is to be a glorious creature made in the image of God to love him with their whole heart, mind, soul and strength and to abide in his word. And let's live by faith as creatures made in his image, worshipping him, not as authors of our own identities or masters of our own destinies, but in the righteousness of Christ revealed to us and reckoned to us in the gospel as we walk in the obedience of faith to the praise of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us.
Father, we were once children of wrath, but you, rich in mercy, rich in love and grace, have rescued us and saved us and made us children of love, children of your family. Father, where would we be without your grace and your mercy to us and your Son? Father, we are sorry for our sin, where we have at times suppressed the truth and in our own hearts sought to be what we ought not to be and to do what we ought not to do. Have mercy on us, Father. And Father, we pray for our nation. I pray this morning, even as we bring these things to you, that as I prayed earlier, that my tone would not be one of condemnation, but one of deep concern and compassion and love. Father, our nation is suppressing the truth about you, caught up in a worship of self and so many other things, and you have given us up to the lust of our hearts. Lord, have mercy on us. And Father, would you grant to us your people here and your church throughout this land, the sure hope and assurance of Christ in the forgiveness you've given us by his blood. And Father, out of that assurance, would you grant to us boldness and confidence not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to speak the truth in love. And we pray, Father, that you would raise up more workers for the harvest from among us here and beyond, so that many, many more lost sheep without a shepherd might come to know your saving grace. Father, we pray for those in our own homes and families, extended families, where these things are working out or not working out. Give us the words of grace and words of truth and love to speak. And we pray you would change hearts and transform lives to your praise and glory. We thank you, Father, that you, the Lord, are our shepherd. And you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen.